Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text from the Gospel for the day, uh, the first two verses, these words, As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all of these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Perhaps you've said something similar to that after, for example, climbing the 333 steps of the 300-foot tower of the Washington Cathedral or in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., perhaps that's when you said it, or it might have been as you were standing speechless in St. Peter's Basilica looking up at the dome of Michelangelo 400 feet above you, or it might have been as you were standing in Red Square looking off at the magnificent St. Basil's Cathedral there, or perhaps it was the famous Notre Dame de Paris, or maybe Westminster Abbey in London, Or it might even have been as you went to Knob Hill and saw Grace Cathedral. Wherever it was, whenever it was, sometime, somewhere, the magnitude of something has moved you to say in your own way what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And if that's happened to you, you can well imagine how it must have been for the disciples that said those very words in our text for today when they saw the great temple of Jerusalem. After all, these were men who very probably built their own homes with their own hands, going out into the fields nearby or into the hillsides nearby and picking up small stones themselves and bringing them and piling them on top of one another and then filling them in between with mud, crafting their own homes with mud plaster, whitewashing the outside for a finished effect, but that's how they built their homes, and to them these stones were large, but can you imagine them standing then, seeing this massive structure that must have dwarfed the largest buildings of their little villages? Don't for a minute underestimate the grandeur of the temple in Jerusalem. It was in its day one of the greatest structures that had ever been built by man, Athens had its Parthenon dating back to about 450 B.C. That might have been great, but it was nothing compared to the Temple of Jerusalem, which was more than twice as old as that. In fact, even before the Parthenon was constructed, the Temple in Jerusalem had already been built, destroyed, and rebuilt a second time. That's how old, how ancient the Temple in Jerusalem was. Rome had its pantheon, a temple for its gods, but neither the pantheon of Rome nor the Parthenon of Athens were at all as magnificent or as ancient as the temple in Jerusalem. And that's what the disciples in our text for today are looking at. Built by Solomon nearly a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, it was destroyed in about 586 B.C. by a king named Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian king, And then the Babylonians, Iraq of today, were conquered by the Persians, Iran of today, 
interesting conflict that goes back a long time. The Persians allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem there to rebuild their temple, which they did, a task that was completed in 515 B.C. But you know, as grateful as the Jews were to be able to rebuild the temple after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians, as grateful as they were to be able to rebuild it, you know, it, it, it didn't compare in the least way to the first temple that had been built by Solomon, didn't have the grandeur, the magnificence of the first temple, and so in 19 B.C. or 20 B.C., just before the birth of our Lord, Herod the Great, the same Herod who would slaughter the infant boys of Bethlehem in his paranoid attempt to destroy Jesus, he decides he's going to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem to its former glory, to be like it was back in the days of King Solomon, to restore the temple to its former glory. No cost would be too great for him to do that. 10,000 skilled workers are hired, 1,000 priests are taken from their daily duties and they're trained to be stonemasons because only stonemasons could do the work of building the temple and the holy parts of the temple. And so the priests had to be trained as stone workers and stonemasons in order to do this. 1,000 priests, 1,000 wagons were hired to carry these massive stones from quarries that were nearby. Some stones, according to records dating back to the time, measuring 40 feet by 14 feet by 20 feet, weighing 50 tons or more. Stones that massive, that huge, according to the ancient records. All a part of this massive structure, which according to Jews arguing with Jesus in the Gospel of St. John, remember the they said it took us 46 years to build this temple. And to that, think also of what the famous Jewish historian Josephus says, that it wasn't until 63 AD that the temple courts were completed. So what do you have? You, 19 BC to 63 AD, and you've got a period of 80 plus years that it really took for this grand and this, this sacred structure of antiquity to be built. It took a whole lifetime to build it. Any wonder at all that these awestruck disciples would see it and say, what massive stones, what, what magnificent buildings. And how surprised then as they beheld these seemingly stable structures how surprised they must have been to hear Jesus say, see all of these great buildings, all of these structures that so impress you, not one stone of them will be left upon another. Every one of them will come down. And come down they did. The temple walls were brought down in their fullness in 70 AD. The Roman army, led by the future emperor, who at that time was a general named Titus, besieged the city of Jerusalem, destroying it to such an extent that Josephus, the historian who had witnessed it all, and then wrote about it a little later, wrote these words and said, Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, Caesar, Titus, gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and the temple.
but should leave some towers standing and so much of the wall which enclosed the city on the west side, western wall. This wall was spared, but for all the rest of the wall, there was left nothing to make those that came near the city even believe that it had ever been inhabited. This was the end to which Jerusalem came, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all of mankind." Unquote. Josephus, a contemporary, a witness who saw it all happen. Because of his leadership in this battle, General Titus was offered the Roman wreath of victory, but you know what he did? He refused the wreath. He said, quote, there's no merit in vanquishing a people who have been forsaken by their own God, unquote. Wrong, Emperor Titus. God had not at all forsaken his people. God had come to his people at that very time in the most intimate and in the most personal way. He had come among them as one of them themselves. He'd come among them in flesh and in blood. But they had rejected him. The people had forsaken their God. It wasn't the other way around that God had forsaken them. He had come in the most intimate way that he could and they forsook him. They, Titus, delivered him over to your Pontius Pilate to crucify. A people once so blessed by God, holding the very treasuries of God itself, namely the, the scriptures of old and all the prophets prophesied, a people called by him to see with their own eyes and to hear with their own ears the very awesome and the miraculous ways by which he would make himself known to deliver them be it the burning bush at Mount Horeb, or in the fire and the smoke and the tablets of stone at Mount Sinai, or the pillar of cloud that led them during the day, or the pillar of fire that went before them in their wilderness wanderings at night, or in the, the Shekinah cloud, the great cloud that came in its holiness and settled down over the tabernacle it was moving from place to place throughout the wilderness or then later on when the temple was built this the Shekinah this great cloud would settle the cloud of God's presence settling right over the temple itself and in the temple in order to remind the people that indeed God was there but despite all of this the people forgot and the people forsook God they forgot that the temple and all of the sacrificing of animals that was being done by the priests in it was nothing more than a foreshadowing of the unique and the ultimate divine human sacrifice that was going to be made of that divine human priest who would come, the Messiah, who would come in the flesh, who would make himself the sacrifice for their sins, who would replace the temple as the ultimate and eternal dwelling of God with man. It wasn't in the temple. It was in the Christ, who the temple merely represented for a time. The man-made temple of Jerusalem, man-made temple of Jerusalem, standing there in all of its magnificence, and the man-made sacrificing being done within its walls, had all come to overshadow everything it was only meant to pre-shadow. The work of man, be it the temple or the sacrifices being made in it, the work of man 
had become more important to the people than the work of God, who was embodied in the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ so that he could be sacrificed outside of the temple walls for the sins of all the world. Isn't that what St. Paul says? God was in him. God was in Christ, reconciling the whole world unto himself. And was it that the writer of Hebrews says about the, the work of the temple priests and what they did in pre-shadowing and prefiguring this Christ compared to the ultimate priest himself who would come listen again to what's said in the epistle lesson. For today every priest, it says, stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, but they can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for one time a single sacrifice for sins, he then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. You see, when it comes to comparing the, the works of man, even those as humanly grand and glorious as the temple of Jerusalem and all that happened in it to the works of God in the flesh, in our Lord Jesus Christ, there simply is no comparison to be made. None to be made. The works of man have no lasting significance. None. No matter if they were works done back then or works that are done by man today, they have no lasting significance. But the works of God in the flesh do. Indeed, the works of God in the flesh have an eternal significance, a lasting magnificence. And on a much smaller scale, isn't that the way it is with all of us too? The works of man, be it the individual things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, in our homes, school, jobs, retirement, whatever it might be, or the things we acquire, the things we attempt to maintain, our houses and cars, our investments and our health, they all so easily and sinfully overshadow the work of God that's taking place daily in our lives, even as does the often disturbing and disconcerting things that the government does or doesn't do, things which it seems have such a lasting significance to all of us, the things that we do, the government does, man does, sinners that we are, allowing the works of man individually, corporately, or governmentally to overshadow the significance and the lasting magnificence of the work of God in our lives. Work that is so often done in such simple and quiet and still ways through the divinely disguised realities which can only be recognized by the faith of the faithful. For who but the faithful see God working through simple water, like in baptism? Who but the faithful can see God working through his very body and blood in bread and in wine that sit upon an altar? Who but the faithful see those things? Who but the faithful hear God speaking and saying your sins are forgiven you in the absolution? God working in each of these very open but underestimated ways so that we may, as the epistle lesson today says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? 
because he who has promised is faithful. Though the grandest works of man ultimately fail you, the works of God will not. Any wonder that Jesus is not about to let his disciples very long look at those buildings in Jerusalem and think their hope was what was taking place with them. Any wonder that he wouldn't allow them long to stand there agape at the magnificence of the temple. It's not going to last, he says, in 40 years it's going to be a pile of rubble. And that's the way it is with the works of man. No matter how grand they may seem for a while, they all but add to the dust heap of history, ultimately. And so it is Jesus told Peter and James and John and Andrew, who came to him and privately asked him afterward when all these things were going to happen, when the works of man are going to continue to appear. Jesus told them a time on the world stage and then they're going to disappear from it. Yes, he said, nations are going to rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdom, he says. Men will mourn the fading of one, and then glory in the rising of another. And God will continue patiently but faithfully to throw in his warnings periodically that remind us that man-made works do perish at last. And so Jesus says there will be earthquakes, and here are the reminders in various places. And there will be famines. But be not alarmed. The end is not yet. These, he says, are but the beginning of birth pangs. Speaking of birth pangs, I hadn't planned to be with you this morning because Barb and I were planning to be in Elgin, Illinois to celebrate the birth and the rebirth of our new little granddaughter who was due a week ago today, who would have been baptized this morning. Well, little Ellie, as she's been called, was, was taking her time. And so here I am and this Lutheran pulpit, and there her father is in his Lutheran pulpit a couple thousand miles away, both of us thinking throughout the week that perhaps the words of our Lord in today's gospel, these are the beginning of birth pangs, might get something started. <laughs> well, they did. And little Ellie was born at about midnight on Friday. And so we'll be going to see her this coming week and celebrating her birth and rebirth with her. Whatever the words, these are the beginning of birth pangs, poignantly remind us of all that, that God's agenda is the one ultimately that's going to take place, whether it's in our lives individually as a little baby, or as adults, or as the aged. For all of us corporately in the church, God's agenda is the one that's going to take place. Indeed, for all the world, God's agenda is the one that has been established, and it is the one that will be accomplished in his good time. It's not important, therefore, that we know all the details about what's coming down the road for us or for the world, be it poverty or wealth or sickness or health or wars and rumors of wars and the various degrees of persecutions which will come and they will wear us down, but they will not wear us out as confessors of Christ in each generation. Simply put and confidently put, we don't need to know exactly what's coming or when it's coming. Why not? Because we know who is coming. And when all is said and done, that's all that really matters. Who is coming?
Jesus Christ is coming. Coming right now in his word and his sacraments as you receive them to prepare us for that day when he visibly comes again to bring us to that dimension of reality which does indeed have an everlasting magnificence. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.